Let's pray. Father, as Christ is alive, so we pray that by his spirit he would dwell with us now and open our hearts to the great events of that Easter morning so long ago and connect it to our lives today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I imagine that when Mary saw that the tomb of Jesus had been disturbed, she felt sick to the pit of her stomach. This weekend had been, after all, catastrophic. Jesus had been arrested and the sight of him in that purple robe and the crown of thorns before the crowd having been flogged, the sight of him on the cross, the sight of his lifeless body wrapped and laid in the tomb. These were not sights she cared to dwell on or to remember or to ever have seen. Could things get any worse? Well, perhaps they could because the Sunday morning when she arrives, the tomb is disturbed. The stone has been moved, the body is gone and the surge of adrenaline kicks in and she begins to run. And as she runs back, her legs start to burn until she finds Peter and the others and says they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. Who would do this and why? Wasn't it enough that he'd been beaten and strung up to die, that he was dead? Peter and his friend, the other disciple, experienced their own nasty jolt at Mary's news, which sets them running too. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. This unnamed disciple, described as the one Jesus loved, is identified you know, in John 21, 24, a coming chapter, as the disciple who testifies to these things, that is, to the contents of the Gospel of John, and who wrote them down. He is traditionally identified as John Zebedee of Peter, James and John fame, and so let's call him John. That is his name. John hangs back and Peter goes straight in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Now, if you read all four Gospels in the account of this morning, you'll uh, discover that they don't neatly and obviously align in all their details. However, the list of common elements in their accounts is considerable. All the accounts say that Joseph of Arimathea, previously unmentioned in the Gospels, asks Pilate for the body of Jesus and is given it. He wraps it in linen and buries it in an unused tomb with a stone door. All four Gospels say that Mary Magdalene and some other women go to the tomb early on the Sunday morning. They find the stone rolled away and the tomb empty. Mary and the others, there's an encounter with angels. This account, though, of the linen that John uh, recounts in most detail is only otherwise mentioned in Luke, but it is mentioned also in Luke, and probably because this is a puzzling and unexpected detail of the scene 
of Jesus' empty tomb. Because if you assume, as Mary has done, that someone has moved the body, questions arise like, well, why undress a body before you move it? Usually people kind of want something convenient to move the body in you. In a movie, they wrap it up in a carpet and chuck it in the boot of a car. Why undress a body before you move it? Why leave behind the linen? If you were here on Friday, I mentioned that in the ancient world, textiles were valuable, far more valuable than they are today. If you're going to rob a grave, you're not going to be squeamish about using whatever you find there. You're not going to worry about where it's been. Why leave the linen behind? This is a puzzle. And just seeing this sets off something in John. Verse 8, finally the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still do not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. What exactly it was that John believed is not made explicit, but presumably he believed that Jesus had risen that something had happened. This comes to him, though, as a novel and unexpected conclusion. It is not something that is a preformed expectation that he had from reading Scripture. We cut back then to Mary, who has apparently followed Peter and John back, but is still sunk in her own grief and dwelling on the unanswered question, where is Jesus? Now Mary stood outside the tomb, crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. In the other Gospels, the angels deliver the message, he is not here, he is risen But here in John, Mary doesn't wait to hear anything, but turns away, it seems, only to encounter a man she does not recognise. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. Now, in John's Gospel, it is rare for Jesus to use someone's name when he is speaking to them. It stands out. There's only a handful of examples. Lazarus, come out, is one. Have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still do not know me, is another. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than all of these? is a third, and this is the fourth. Just one word, Mary. This one word, a name spoken, breaks all the tension and recognition and joy flood in. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Perhaps she flung her arms around him or fell at his feet, for Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. 
So Jesus doesn't say, I'm back and I'm, I'm here to stay. Rather, he is kind of still on the way. He's in process, the process of leaving the world and going back to the Father. His bodily return to life is not a return to ordinary life. It's part of his ascension to the Father who sent him, his return to the place from which he came. But what Jesus does say points to what he has achieved in coming, in staying, in dying, in rising. He says, go instead and tell my brothers, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Jesus' father has become the father of all disciples. Jesus and his disciples share a common relationship to God as father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. To explore this further, we might return to something Jesus said the night he was arrested, where he said to his disciples, Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realise that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Let's take those things one at a time. Because I live, you also will live. When you look at Jesus' resurrection, you might be tempted to think, well, it's nice for him, you know. But he was special. What hope do we have? He was special, but what happened to him catches us up in it. Because I live, you also will live. His resurrection is the prototype and the promise of our resurrection. His resurrection involves us and guarantees to us that death need not have the last word over us. More than that, Jesus said, on that day, the day I live, you'll realise that I am in my Father and you are in me and I am in you. What does this mean? There is a, a union with God that Jesus has brought about between human beings and God through his death and resurrection. It means that what Jesus has done is to bring believers into a deep union and belonging to God, Father and Son. This is, you know, said in multiple ways throughout John's Gospel. Here's another way of saying, talking about this this relationship with God that Jesus brings about. Right at the start of John's Gospel, we read that to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not born of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. We are not divine. We are not God or part of God or manifestations of God. We are creatures, finite, created, dependent on God, but separate from God. We have no natural descent from God or shared nature with him. But through Jesus and his death for sin, his resurrection in our human nature, his ascent to his father, We can be born of God. 
We can become children of God. We can be joined to Jesus, the Son of the Father. We can come to realise that his Father is our Father. The one who joins us to God. The one who makes us God's children is God's Spirit. Paul wrote in Romans 8, Those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. This is the difference Christ's resurrection ultimately makes to us. That we can call God and know God to be Abba, Father, to us. So when we think about actual day-to-day life, holidays, picnics with friends, bills to pay, assignments to complete, golf competitions to strive to win, hospital visits to make, court cases to face, company takeovers, referendum questions, home renovations. You might think, isn't that really life and what it's about? Isn't these old stories of empty tombs and ideas about belonging to God, aren't they just strange irrelevancies, peripheral really to real life? Well, I would rather say that all these things, holidays and picnics and bills and assignments, golf games, hospital visits, court cases, takeovers, referendums and renovations, these things are put in proper perspective by the resurrection of Christ. Because we live in a world where Jesus rose from the dead and has ascended to his heavenly Father, we believers face all the circumstances of life, big and small, informed by that, by that central fact and truth, reality of our life. Jesus said, because I live, you also will live. These words put death in a new perspective. Death which haunts us, which worries us, which whispers to us, which approaches us relentlessly through all of the bills and renovations and golf games and picnics of our lives. Because I live, you also will live, puts death in its place. We have something to say to death. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Jesus also said, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And these words put in perspective who we are. We are not lonely, unseen and unknown products of a meaningless and mindless nature. But we are beloved children of a heavenly father and sisters and brothers of his beloved and risen son. And so I say Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. I wish you the joy of it. Let's pray. May your son's resurrection Put into perspective all the questions and experiences and circumstances of our lives, we pray. Heavenly Father, thanking you that it is because of his death and resurrection and ascension to your right hand that we can call upon you as our Father, that you are indeed our Father and our God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.